I've been reading from a guy by the name of Russell D. Moore. Russell D. Moore has written a book called Onward. He's only probably 43 years old. He is a professor at a Southern Baptist University, but I find this guy to be a very interesting thinker. He's written this book, Onward, and the subtitle is Engaging the Culture Without Losing the Gospel. How do you engage the culture in which we find ourselves living without forfeiting the gospel, minimizing or trivializing the gospel? In his book, Onward, he tells this story, and I want you to hear this. He said, I was in a conversation with an atheist, a lesbian progressive activist. She wanted to talk to me because evangelical Christianity piqued her interest, more from a sociological phenomenon. She was most interested in our sexual ethic, and she peppered me with questions about why we thought certain things were sinful. We had a respectful conversation, though she couldn't help but laugh out loud several times when I articulated viewpoints that are quite commonplace in Christianity. She said I was the first person she had ever talked to who believed that sexual expression should only take place within marriage and that marriage could only happen with the union of a man to a woman. She said that if she ever met anyone who had seen someone for more than three or four weeks without engaging in sex, she would not first assume that the person had some sort of religious conviction, but rather that this person must be bearing the psychological scars from some type of traumatic abuse. She went on to say, do you see how strange what you're saying to me sounds to us who are living here in normal America? He said, before I could answer, I was distracted by those two words, normal America. Most of the people in the pews of my church back home would consider themselves to be normal America. They would view this woman as being part of some freakish cultural elite out of touch with traditional values, but I suspect maybe she's right today. She represents almost this moral majority in our country who's committed to values of personal autonomy and sexual freedom. She is somewhat normal now. She asked me again, seriously, do you know how strange this sounds to me? I smiled and said, yes, I do. It sounds strange to me too, but what you need to know is we also believe even stranger things. We believe a previously dead man is going to show up in the sky one day riding a horse. <laughs> I read this article and I thought, that's interesting. Strange. What is strange? What is normal? How do you define normal in our day? And I believe with all my heart what has become normal in our culture, in our schoolhouses, as well as, and this harms my heart, but what has become normal also in the church house is for people to live with high-level tolerance in their life. G.K. Chesterton said that tolerance is the virtue for the man with no conviction. Tolerance is a buzzword in our culture. Tolerance is applauded in our culture. Now, let me give you a working definition of how tolerance is defined today. It is important to understand the definition of terminology, especially as we deal with this postmodern humanistic culture. Now, tolerance is defined today as respecting 
and accepting someone's opinions, behaviors, and practices, even if those opinions, practices, and behavior are sinful or even promote sin. You've got to understand this. Tolerance today means you accept and you respect that lifestyle, that belief, that behavior, that practice, whatever it is, and you say, I'm cool with it. Now, we understand this. Loving the person is important, but not accepting and respecting what God calls sin is essential. Now, people would ask the question, can tolerance and truth coexist? I've had people pose that question. Do you believe that tolerance and truth can coexist? About five, six years ago, I had the opportunity to go with Mac Powell and uh, some guys with Third Day, and uh, they had tickets to the U2 concert. And I went down, and I was uh, really intrigued to listen to Bono and U2 play at Phillips. What an incredible concert. I mean, it's almost cultish to watch the following with U2. But Bono, about halfway through, came out with this headband, and all it said on it was coexist. And he had the Star of David, he had the Christian cross, and then he had the symbol of Islam. And he's making this appeal for people that we've got to learn to coexist. How does truth and tolerance coexist? Here's what you got to know. Since tolerance accepts sin and God doesn't accept sin, it's impossible for truth and tolerance to coexist. You've, you've got to know this in the reasoning. Uh, you've got to know this even in the thinking process. Uh, what are the effects of tolerance on a so-called believer? For the believer, tolerance affects your spiritual life. It will affect specifically your understanding of Christ and his word. It will affect your ability to really love and worship God purely. And it will also affect your ability to live the spirit-filled, spirit-controlled life. You go, does tolerance appear in the Bible? Yes. Revelation 2.20, listen to this. I have this against you that you tolerate the woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and she teaches and leads my bond servants astray so that they commit acts of immorality. He goes, I got this against you. You look at those seven churches in Revelation, do a study, but he goes, here's what I've got. You're tolerating Jezebel. You're tolerating the spirit of this woman. And she is willfully coaching and leading my people to immoral, sexual, immoral, whatever acts. I've got that against you. You got to clean it up. So here's our heart. Here's our heart. Our quest is to know, has God spoken and if so, what does he say? That, that's the whole quest in this journey. Instead of landing in the book of opinions or the book of speculation, you want to go to the word of God and ask the question, God, have you spoken about this specific issue? And if you have, what did you say? Did you stutter? Were you shy? Or were you clear? Now, this is interesting. This is very interesting. We believe here at the Cross Loganville that the core fabric of a healthy society is the family that is made up of a man and a woman. We believe that the core fabric of a healthy society is the family specifically defined man and woman, not same-sex relations, homosexuality, and lesbianism. The core of a healthy society, look at it. The Cross Loganville is, defend, uh, is uh, dedicated 
to defending the honor, dignity, and value of the two sexes as created in God's image, intentionally male and intentionally female, each bringing unique and complementary qualities to sexual relationships. Does this make sense? We are here to honor God, but we're dedicated to defend what God has said. Now, it, it will be on the notes. All these notes will be online, but here's what I would encourage you with. I did a message two and a half years ago. I was doing a series that we titled Controversy, and we looked at alcohol and tattoos and a bunch of other, but we talked about this whole issue of same-sex attraction. I lay out in more detail in that message God's blueprint of what it looks like. And so that message, all you've got to do is just uh, go to our website, and that link is there. It's on Vimeo, the Cross Loganville, and it's titled SSA. You can access it, but I would encourage you to see that to get more of the backdrop of it. Now, Genesis chapter 1, Genesis 1, verse 27 says, God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, Adam, ish, is the word in Hebrew, male and female, he created them. So when God created us, he was intentional in his design of making us intentionally male, intentionally female. This is important to know. We believe that sexuality is a glorious gift from God, just like our skin color is. None of us stood in line for what color we would be. Now, just as, you're, uh, just as you, you've been created male and female, your sexuality is a glorious gift from God that is to be offered back to him Remember, the secret of life is to realize your life doesn't belong to you. It belongs to him. Life belongs to God. This is really a whole life conversation here. But it's to be offered back to God either in marriage for procreation, marital union in mutual delight, or in celibacy so that you can have undivided devotion to God. Those are the three things you find in Scripture that God lays out. So sexuality, when you study it, is the epitome of intimacy between a husband and wife, and it is the portrait or the picture of the depth of the union between Christ and his church. When you study it, he refers to us as the bride. So there's tons of scripture, but I would highly encourage you to go back and go, all right, what, what does these texts say? Has God spoken? And if so, specifically, what has he shared with us? Does this make sense? Now, that being said is a backdrop. That's who we are. We're here to defend it. We believe that God has clearly spoken in the scripture about this issue of homosexuality and lesbianism. We believe he's clearly spoken. There's five passages specifically that address this issue. Five. Two in the Old Testament we'll look at. Three in the New Testament. Now, here's what I want you to know. He speaks about this issue in these five. But if you study the scripture, God has a lot more to say in this book about money, about attitude, about anger, about gossip, about drunkenness, about adultery, about fornication. God has a lot more to say about those issues than he does to this 
issue of homosexuality. But what he does have to say about this issue, he doesn't stutter. But I'm going to get to a point here in a bit that I think is crucial for all of us. He's spoken about all these other issues as well. Now, the five passages, Genesis 19, you can look at it on your own, but it deals with Sodom and Gomorrah. God will deal thoroughly with sexual sin. He lays that out in Genesis 19, specifically including homosexual sin. Leviticus 18 and 19, God declares that homosexual sin is prohibited. God emphasizes that even consensual homosexual relations is sinful. Because you'll hear people make the argument, well, it's consensual. It doesn't matter. Leviticus 18, verse 22, you shall not lie with a male as one lies with a female. It is an abomination. If there is a man who lies with a male as those who lie with a woman, both of them have committed a detestable act. They shall surely be put to death under the Levitical law. Their blood guiltiness will be upon them. God's God's spoken clear. He's spoken in Romans chapter 1, 18 through 32. We'll deal with that in a bit. 1 Corinthians 6, verses 9 and 10. He's spoken clearly there. He's spoken in 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. Please meditate on it. But in 1 Timothy 1, he makes the, the observation, basically, that homosexuality does not conform to a godly life, and it is not fitting for a person who claims to be a follower of Christ. Okay? So that's where we're going to go. Now, therefore, based on this, we believe that God throughout the Old and the New Testament clearly teaches that engaging in homosexual acts is sinful. It's it's sinful, but we'll we'll deal with that. Now, now that being said, I want you to hear the heart. I want you to hear the heart. Don't miss this. Now, that being said, I have met some Christians that judge homosexuals as hopeless And they assign a higher degree of sinfulness to the homosexual than they do their own sin that initially separated them from God. And you will hear people attack certain sins that they feel that they're less likely to commit. Here's the statement. Stop attacking only the sins that you feel less likely to commit. But because it is so flawed in the reasoning to do that. Every person that walked in this room is a struggling sinner, hopefully that becomes a struggling saint in Christ Jesus. Every person I've ever met in my entire life struggles. And so what we oftentimes do, oh, we love throwing rocks at what we feel we're less likely to do. You can go back to that John uh, passage where the woman was caught in the very act of adultery and Jesus looks at her and he looks at her with compassion and grace. The religious posse of that day came to kill her. They wanted to stone her. And Jesus said, you who are without sin, throw your first rock. And each person dropped their rock. Why? Because none of us are without sin. Sin. The greater mistake that some people make is assigning a moral identity to homosexuality and never looking beyond the surface to what really is the root of the homosexual life and homosexual activity. Listen to me. Every person struggles longing for love and acceptance and worth 
and security and significance. All of us at some point in our life, all of us have tried to get our needs met apart from God. All of us have tried to find fulfillment and satisfaction and identity and approval and worth in what we call less wild lovers. All of us have done that. And so when you start to ascribe an identity to that, you have to be careful. Here's one of the key points. Every human being that has ever existed struggles with lies about our own self-perception. We look in the mirror, we, we look at life, and we start to compare ourselves with other people. Comparison is the death of contentment. And so every person struggles with lies about self-perception that leads us to this intense self-focus. And we get so consumed at times with our self and we're trying to make sense of ourselves and we just want somebody to love us, uh, value us, appreciate us, whatever, and we're all jacked up. So when you start to understand how we all struggle with lies about our own self-identity, we're not really different than anybody else that we meet. That's the reason that book I read years ago called The Same Kind of Different as Me, when you start to look at the drug addict the drunk, the homosexual, whatever, the out-of-control, adulterous, heterosexual, deep down inside, we're trying to get our needs met apart from Christ. Don't ascribe an identity. We're all sinners. We all need a Savior. We believe, according to the Word of God, that men and women are not born homosexual, but they make a willful decision to that lifestyle. And I'm going to unpackage that. We're all born sinners, and we're subject to a variety of temptations. Your temptation is going to be different than the next person. Do some people, when they're young and they're born into the world, do they struggle with same-sex attraction as a temptation? Yeah. When people say, well, I was just born that way, we, we don't believe that. I don't believe that Ted Bundy was born that way, that he would rape and kill those co-eds. Don't believe it. I don't believe Jeffrey Dahmer was born that way, that he would rape and kill these people and eat them in Milwaukee. No, I, don't, I don't believe that. I believe we're all born into the world with twisted worldviews and a twisted heart because sin disrupted humanity at every level. We do believe that. We believe that every person born into the world is born scarred and marred by sin. We use the bullseye. Because it's an old archer term, and what the bullseye really says is there's only the center is perfection, and those rings around the bullseye are called sin one, sin two, and sin three. So when you miss the bullseye, what you've actually done is you've missed God's standard. What is God's standard? Perfection. Anybody in here perfect? Now we've all missed the righteous standard of God. There's all of sin and come short of the glory of God. Who's the glory of God? Jesus. No matter how off the bullseye you are, you're off the bullseye. Now, Sam Alberry is a pastor in the UK. And Sam Alberry has written a book that is titled, Is God Anti-Gay? And this book deals with questions about homosexuality, the Bible, and same-sex attraction. I've got a link that gives you kind of the, uh, the intro to this book uh, that you can go and read. Sam Alberry is a pastor that struggles and has struggled with same-sex attraction issues. Sam is a 
pastor. He struggles with same-sex attraction. And I know some good old boys that go, well, I wouldn't go listen to that dude because you're narcissistic. But Sam makes this observation in the book, Is God Anti-Gay? He said, desires for things that God has forbidden, desires for things that God has forbidden is a reflection of how sin has distorted me, not how God made me. The excitement for the forbidden inside of our soul is a reflection of how jacked up we are because of sin. It has nothing to do with an indicator of this is how God made me. So here's what I would say. Please do not make your struggle your identity. Don't make your struggle your identity. We all struggle. I would say it this way. We are not what our temptation says. We're what God says we are. That's the reason it is so important to understand your identity in Christ. And one of the things we emphasize with our people is, do you really believe what God believes about you? Because if you don't believe what God believes about you, you will open yourself up, yourself up to a variety of lies and start to believe what the world says or somebody else says. God made us intentionally, male and female. Romans chapter 1 says this, God gave them over and the lust of their hearts to impurity so that their bodies would be dishonored among them. Listen to this. They exchanged the truth of God for the lie. They exchanged the truth of what God had to say for the struggle or the temptation, which was a lie. For this reason, God gave them over to degrading passions. Their women exchanged the natural function for that which is unnatural. God gave them over. They, ex they exchanged truth for a lie, but they exchanged the natural function for the unnatural. Women with women, men with men. Oh, men is what he's saying. They started burning in their desire toward one another, committing indecent acts, and they received in their persons the due penalty of their error. Listen to this right here. This would be good. It may be in your notes, but write this down. Natural and unnatural. Natural means the order of God's design. Because I've heard some in the homosexual community say, well, what, what you're really saying is what's natural for you is, it, it is unnatural, but it's natural for us. No, 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 no. The word natural means the order of God's design. Unnatural means to willfully go against God's order and design. Make sense? Everybody, everybody tracking with this? This ain't just some preaching. This is a very, very centered up teaching for you today because I want you to get this. When you go against God's order of design willfully, it's unnatural. It's not the way God intended it. So when people continue, even when you read this, to sin and live in unbelief, God gives them over to do even more wicked and depraved acts to show people how hopeless and futile their life is apart from him. God's heart is for all to repent and come back into a harmonious relationship with him. It's not God's will for any person, man, woman, boy, and girl to perish, but that all would come to repentance. Make sense? So the heart of God is, I want to see all, but I'll give you over to show you how futile and empty 
and hopeless that life is. I lived in futility and hopelessness and insanity for a period of time because I continued to spiral out of control in my sin. But once I came to a radical understanding of, of faith in Christ, God started to clean me up. But he allowed me to taste how empty that was. And then I'm like, it's empty. It has nothing to offer. If that's the best this world's got, I don't want it. And I think God allows that to happen. We believe, here's another we believe statement. We believe that struggling with temptation is not sinful. But yielding to and acting out upon that temptation is sinful. We believe that struggling with temptation is not a sin. Jesus was tempted in Matthew 4. Hebrews 4 says, we have a great high priest in Jesus Christ who can sympathize with our weaknesses. He's been tempted in all things just as we, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace in time of need. Why is this important? Jesus was tempted in all things. You, 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 you may say then, then, not the specifics, not maybe specifically in every area that we are, but in general, he was tempted to give in to the flesh. The, 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 the real struggle in temptation is not the drug, not the alcohol, not the sex, not the porn and the internet, whatever you're doing, not the lie, not the embezzling. The real struggle is will you give in to the flesh? And so Satan's biggest ploy is to try to get you to cave in to something that would gratify the flesh where you can try to get your needs met or become satisfied apart from him. Once that happens, man, you're, you're opening up Pandora's box there. Now, that being said, we believe everyone struggles with temptation in one form or another. Every person struggles with temptation in one form or another. A person may really have a greater bent toward homosexuality. You may have a greater bent toward anger and rage. The question has to be posed, because I have this temptation or tendency, does that make it okay for me to give in to it? And the answer is no. No. And, 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 and so if you've got rage and you get mad and you want to kill someone, is that okay? No, no, no that's, that's not okay. If you get mad and want to just go off and, and slander someone, is that okay? No. No. And so I think oftentimes the temptation is, well, I've asked God to really free me in this area, and I, I just haven't found the freedom. Undoubtedly, this is the way I'm supposed to be. I'll deal with that in a second. We believe, according to the word of God, that men and women who struggle with same-sex attraction— or any other sin can, in fact, stop engaging in that sin. We believe you can. We believe that through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ and obedience to God's word, anyone can change and overcome any sin and find victory in the person of Jesus Christ and him alone. I don't care what your struggle is and what your area of defeat has been. We believe that the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ can set anyone free. Amen. And I sit here today amongst you as you sit here, and many of you have come to that real realization. That it was only through the shed blood of the gospel and the power of the Holy Spirit that has freed me. Now, do you still struggle with temptation? Yes. Do you still have battles? Yes. 
Are there some things that you thought maybe by this time in your journey you would be graduated from? Yes. Are they still a struggle? Yes. I want you to hear this. 2 Corinthians 12, verse 7, Paul says, to keep me, listen, listen, to keep me from exalting in myself. To keep me from exalting in myself. Mentored by Gamaliel, one of the smartest men of his day, Hebrew of Hebrews, circumcised the eighth day, comes from the line of Benjamin, brilliant. Look at Paul's life. To keep me from exalting in myself, there was given to me a thorn in the flesh. Now, here's the problem. Here's the problem. Paul doesn't specifically say what the thorn in the flesh was. And I believe it's that for that way for a reason. Also, there was given to me a messenger of Satan to torment me. Satan had a messenger that God allowed to show up and just torment me. Why? To keep me from exalting myself. I want you to hear this. I begged the Lord three times, please remove this. And the Lord said, no, my grace is sufficient for you. For my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, Paul says, I will boast about my weakness so that the power of Christ may dwell in me. I'm well content now with weakness. For Christ's sake, I'm well content. For when I'm weak, then he is strong. He doesn't say what his temptation, what his weak area was. It could have been lust. It could have been language. It could have been liquor. It could have been same-sex attraction. You don't know, and I don't know. But we know he prayed, God, please remove this area from me. Now, here would be my question to you. If God removed those one or two areas of incredible weakness from your life, how much would you need him? How hard would you press into him? Because I've had struggle getting saved. Man, I really want to honor God. Why do I struggle with lust at this level? God, please take it away. And early on in my journey talking with other guys, even guys in the church, well, dude, that's just the way God made you, man. All men struggle with that. That's a bunch of junk. I'm like, no, 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 no. I've got a fundamental problem. I'm not setting my mind on things above. I'm setting my mind on things of the earth. I'm empowering my struggle now to give me identity. And what God showed me was if I remove that area of weakness, why would you need my power to be enough? Which dismisses the lie in our culture that says, well, God will never give you more than you can handle. Yes, he will because as long as you can handle it you don't need him but when i realize i've i've struggled in this area and i've lost that battle jesus would you please be enough for me i press into you i trust your sufficiency i've got to have your strength in this area because mine i know what i'm capable of doing
And then, then it keeps me pressing into the Savior. The greatest revelation that I've ever gotten in my life, the greatest revelation that I've ever received in my life was not some insight into Romans 12 or Romans 8 or Philippians 4. The greatest revelation I've ever gotten in my life in these 52 years was the revelation and the realization of understanding how desperate I was in need of the gospel. Everything in my journey hinges on that divine revelation from God. Do you realize how bad you need me to save you? Do you realize how bad you need me to walk with you every day? Do you realize how bad you need me to save you one day at a time? My buddy Bobby just celebrated four years of being clean. Hey, we didn't celebrate four years. We celebrated one day, 365 times four. So it's been 1,400 days time one. Would you save me again for me today? I know how weak I am. I know what I'm capable of giving into. I know where I've been taken out of the game before. Sometimes I think we pray, God, take this away from me. We pray about certain relationships. There's some people in the church that are hard to love. There's some people in your family that are hard to love. But could it be a gift from God to say, hey, how can you say you love me that you haven't seen when you can't even love that person who gets on your nerves? Sometimes those people are gifts to keep me pressing into Jesus. Now, I'm not saying if you struggle with alcohol and pills or whatever, I'm not saying go to the bars and hang out. No, don't be stupid. What are you saying? I believe we need to all start to believe that the Holy Spirit and the power of the gospel is able to change anybody. I'll wrap it up with this. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 9. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Do not be deceived. Neither fornicators, idolaters, adulterers, effeminate, homosexuals, thieves, coveters, drunks, revilers, swindlers will inherit the kingdom. Did you, did you, did you see that? The Bible does not describe homosexuality as the greater sin. Thieves, we talk about this one. As I mentioned on the front side, this book's got more to say about money than it does marriage. It's got a lot more to say about money than it does homosexuality. When a person robs God and cheats God, do you not know that those that are unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom? Fornicators, idolaters, meaning for me, for all those years when I elevated baseball and it was on the throne of my life and it was my God, even after I came to faith in Jesus, could it be that these surgeries was really God's gift to crucify my idolatry? Could it be that he allowed me to be removed from the game because I wasn't really gripping the baseball. Baseball was really gripping me. Could it be that God goes, you're not going to inherit the kingdom the way you're living. You've empowered something bigger than me. You call me Lord, but that's not true. The Bible is very clear. God's forgiveness is available based on this to all adulterers, 
homosexuality, thieves, murderers. God also promises to give us the strength to overcome anything in Christ Jesus. He is able to do exceedingly abundantly above anything we can ask or think. Now, here's what we know, and here's what I conclude with. Truth is narrow. Struggles are widespread. But truth cares for those who struggle. Through responding in repentance to the conviction of the Holy Spirit and really confessing before God and receiving the good news of the gospel into our lives, God is able to radically change all of us. Here's the heart. The cross Loganville, and I want you to see this loud and clear. The cross Loganville desires to be a place where all sinners can truly repent and find peace with Jesus Christ. The cross Loganville desires to see restoration take place and whoever life it is. We're not going to a la carte one sin is being more poisonous. Understand what's happening. I see what's going on in our world. But here's what we've got to understand. When we stop attacking what we feel less likely to do and start loving those who are struggling with sin and start reaching out in the name of Jesus in an agape way, watch what God does. If I could win people to Christ through argument, I would send you all to law school. My great arguments don't win people to Christ. It's the love of Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit that starts to penetrate the heart. We believe the gospel can change and transform anybody.